Hello, I'm Luke Turner. Welcome to Why, the podcast that takes you on an adventure to the edge of knowledge. Now here's a story. Rita Leggett had suffered from debilitating epileptic fits since she was born, ranging from mild seizures causing her to zone out from reality, to intense episodes that threw her down the stairs, and once broke her jaw so badly surgeons had to take a piece of her rib to reconstruct it. In 2010, as a single mother of four children, she took part in a revolutionary trial and had a neurological implant attached to her brain. This feels like a huge step forward into a science fiction film and hardly reality, but deep brain transplants creating an electronic link between AI and neurons were first approved by the FDA over 20 years ago. For Rita, the treatment was transformative. Her implant warned her of impending fits so she could ensure she was safe. Rita said it changed her life to the extent that she became one with the device. But two years later, the company that supplied the implant went bust, and Rita was devastated when it had to be removed. This wasn't a decision motivated by medical need, but legal ownership. Ultimately, Rita gave consent for the removal of her implant, but what if she hadn't? Who would have the final say on whether it could stay? Would a defiant patient be forced to become a renegade, like in Blade Runner? How do we decide where the ethical boundaries lie, and philosophically, where the human ends and the machine begins? Today on Why, we're asking, could my brain become part computer? And if so, who would own it? If you sign a contract with a company to be implanted, that consent should not be the base for further explantation. So if you agree to be implanted, doesn't mean that you will necessarily agree to be explanted. Frédéric Gilbert is Associate Professor of Philosophy and Ethics at the University of Tasmania. Some say that the, your brain is the last frontier between your privacy and the world, and, and AI is about to open that door. Now, the first question, the big question, could my brain become part computer? Technically, yes, it's a possibility, but obviously we will ask your consent first, right? <laughs> but yeah, so these technologies are becoming more and more present in our daily living. So they are designed to take care of some symptoms that are often associated with uh, neurodegenerative diseases, such as Parkinson. But also there's, there's another generation of technologies that are more and more designed to target uh, psychiatric conditions. So yeah, if, if you reach a, a state where you're, you're treatment resistant, yeah, you might be offered at some point an implantable brain devices. So where are we at currently with this science? Is it a fast moving field? It is, actually. And there's more and more investment into the field. So these devices were uh, initially helping people with uh, hearing impairments. So the cochlear implants are a well-famous brain device that allow people that are deaf to hear. But the other generation with deep brain stimulation, helping people with uh, tremor or movement disorder to tackle their symptoms. And the forthcoming generation where the money is put is into all these interfaces, or the brain-computer interfaces that allow to read the brain activity 
and to write in the brain, to, to modulate their brain according to what the program is designed to, to do, actually. So we can uh, predict epilepsy, for instance, predict depressive symptoms. And yeah, so that's the new place where there's a lot of uh, investment now. Yeah. Some people listening, it might conjure up images of sort of doctors opening up skulls and putting in little microchips and devices and then sewing everything back up again. For those of us who, who don't know, can you explain exactly what it is and how it works and how the procedures work? Well, that description is quite accurate, actually. So you, you do have to open the skull via a craniotomy, and then you have to insert and penetrate in the neural tissue with the electrode. So it's called an invasive technology because, you know, it has to be implanted, most of the devices, from which then, depending on the type of devices, they will run tests to see if they are targeting the right spot. Because obviously, if you have Parkinson, uh, you don't want the surgeon to mess too much with your emotional zone, right? It's rather to do with your movement disorder areas. And yeah, so a lot of uh, safeties are required. And, and I think most of these devices are quite safe. There's potential risk as any surgery will involve. And yes, yeah, so it's very elaborated. It is quite impressive and spectacular. So I would invite your audience to go on YouTube and, and write deep brain stimulation Parkinson and you will see spectacular and sort of a miraculous view of people with their tremor. And once they turn on the device, the tremor are gone. It's very, it's very spectacular, yes. So does a doctor or the patient have a sort of external transmitting stimulus device that then operates the, what's in the, the brain? Yeah, so depending on the device and the, the technology, the old-fashioned one, what we, what we call open-loop system, so it's sort of a pacemaker of the brain. So you just turn on the device and the stimulation is just discharged. It's just zapping the brain uh, on a continuous uh, regulate or modulated uh, standard. But the new device is called closed-loop, adapt to the brain activity. Similar to if you, you go in a classic room, you have to turn on the switch to have light, right? And once you turn on, the light is just diffused. But modern rooms, you enter the room and then the sensor that would capture your movement and then the light will be discharged accordingly. Similar in the brain. So they, they have sensor, these electrodes have sensor and capture the, the activity that requires specific zapping, for instance. So, and again, there's plenty of uh, devices, but overall, this would be a generic description of what, what is going on, yes. Okay, so if we sort of sit for hundreds of years, doctors used electrotherapy to treat neurological conditions, and that was sort of seen as a blunt instrument, can be quite traumatising. Is this, as these sort of neuro implants and deep brain stimulation, is it the sort of sharp and more targeted, more effective evolution of that old technique? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We're far away from trepidations. Uh, yeah, so these are called reversible technologies most of the time, or reversible because you can insert them in the brain, it can intrude on the neural tissue, and if something goes wrong, you can explant them. As such, it's less damaging than an ablative surgery. So, for instance, if you have a severe epilepsy, you might reach the point that they will ask you if you want to have an ablative surgery, meaning that you, they will cut part of your brain where the focus of the seizure happened to be sure that the symptoms are gone. So instead of having part of your brain removed, they will instead using electrode to uh, discharge electricity there. So yeah, it's, it's the next step of in the evolution, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And how many people have had the treatment? I think I'd read around 100,000 so far. Is it expanding quickly? 
Yeah, well, actually, it's more than that. So only for deep brain stimulation, that would be a quarter of a million now, perhaps more. It's a booming field now in China. So the numbers are not clear how many people. There's about 21 companies marketing deep brain stimulation. But that's only for the open-up system, those that discharge electricity. But for a company well-established like Cochlear Implant, the Australian company that were the first one to develop the ear implant, there's about yeah, 300,000. So I would say there's probably more than half a million people, probably more than that, actually, that are implanted with these very novel technologies computer interface technologies. I was interested to know who are the companies and institutions behind the technology? Is it private healthcare? Is it health technology companies, state institutions? Most of these companies are private companies. As I mentioned, Cochlear Implant is, is the biggest brain-computer interface company out there, helping a lot, a lot of families. But for a technology targeting Parkinson with deep brain stimulation, that would be Medtronic. So Medtronic is the biggest medical device company on Earth. And yeah, so it's, it's the type of company that are in, in the background, actually. I'm sure some of your audience might have heard about Neuralink, the Elon Musk company that is quite often mentioned the media. That's another example of a private company that are investing a lot of Kernel, also on the West Coast, a company that want to create a brain-computer interfaces. But yeah, at the moment, it's mostly a private company and that involved that user or patient have got a out-of-pocket payment because, you know, even public health system will help these individuals to get the treatment, but there's always area where they, they would need to pay for the care and maintenance, for instance, etc. What was your take on the Rita Leggett case where a mother of four children was very much struggling with epilepsy and had an implant, the company went bust and you know had to have that implant removed? What was your take on, on the ethics of that? particular case. It's quite tragic and, and, and quite fascinating at the same time. So Rita uh, had epilepsy for 49 years, once implanted with a NeuroVista devices, all our symptoms were under control. So having severe epilepsy means that you, you can't drive the car, you, you cannot go to the pool, you basically need always someone to supervise your action because there's always a risk that you will be strike. So once she was implanted, her brain-computer interface was capable of predicting the epileptic seizure. So imagine that was, again, a miraculous effect of the technology. But the sad part is that, yeah, so, you know, she started to merge with the, the technology. She, her narrative was that, you know, it changed herself. It, she became the device. The device was her. But, yeah, the, the company bankrupt and they forced her to be explanted to some extent because she resisted and she, her preference was to keep the device. But, you know, after a long negotiation. But, yeah, so it's quite tragic because, yeah, it was working fine. But yeah, it sort of it reinduced uh, a trauma, I would say, because you know you're symptom-free, and suddenly with explantation, it, it, it takes away that part of you which is the most significant, and, and sort of uh, brought you freedom. Yeah, it's, it was quite tragic, I would say. Yes. What would happen if somebody just point blank refused to have it removed if a company had gone bust or the company decided they wanted their device back or whatever reason? Somebody just said, no, I'm keeping this. This has changed my life. This is part of me. We could be in for a very difficult legal and moral battle, I think. Absolutely, yes. So it has to do with the ownership of the device, but also ownership of yourself, of the person, because if it is incorporated as a essential element of your, or a self-constituating element of your identity, autonomy, uh, or self, yeah, it's quite tricky. As a matter of fact, we haven't yet seen a case where someone was forced to it. But, you know, if you want to illustrate it on a metaphorical level, you can think of the Blade Runner, you know, 
the famous movies where you have these replicants that are running away from the police in a way. So you can think of once you went planned in and it's changed your life, you were a new person that you may refuse and try to hide, avoid your medical appointment, not to get explanted. So I, my, my mother's prediction and that is that we will see more and more of these cases, actually, of uh, implanted individual or bionic people that refuse to be explanted. And yeah, as you mentioned, this raised many ethical issues, especially because if you sign a contract with a company to be implanted, that consent should not be the base for further explantation. So if you agree to be implanted, doesn't mean that you will necessarily agree to be explanted. And that's a form of violation of your mental integrity, I would say. These are brand new areas in law and ethics that we need to explore. How can we trust the companies? And I think a lot of people listening might think having Elon Musk in charge of companies that implant things into people's brains is not a particularly good idea. How can we decide who is ethically fit to run these companies? Well, I wish I could have an easy answer there. <laughs> uh, it's a tough question. So, no, I mean, to be honest, there's no magnificence through these protocols. So the thing is that first in human clinical trial, when you test for the first time a device, a technologies, most of the time, Elon Musk or not, it would not lead to some marketing or direct market endpoints. So it's very hard to transfer first in human into a concrete element. But with these novel technologies, they are more and more successful and effective. So the trust is into the fact that, you know, we we're targeting uh, medical symptoms. These devices are not yet developed to enhance or ameliorate individuals. But so at the moment, the trust is into the fact that these companies work hard to increase the quality of life of a user. It's difficult also to understand that, uh, like most drug trial, actually, when they test it for the first time, some molecule, it will never reach the market. So there's dodgy places where some of the people recruited or enrolled are into a vulnerable position. When, for instance, imagine if you have four, during 40 years epilepsy and they're offering you to chop a part of your brain or in, intrude something in your brain, you would probably select the, the intrusion. And, and yeah, it, it's delicate. But yeah, as long as it, it is run through medical purposes, I think we are a bit more safe than in just a free market to test any form of enhancement, if I may say so. Thinking on the sort of philosophical level, someone like Rita Leggett believed that the device was sort of changed her life, it had been a part of her. Where does the boundary between the self and the imparted object begin and end? Have you sort of seen people re-examining their sense of self once they've had these implants put in? Yeah, that's the extraordinary element of these first in human is that we're quite surprised to capture faithfully these narrative of people describing uh, being another person after being implanted for, for various reasons. But what we are observing now with these artificially intelligent devices that are implanted in one's brain is that there is a, a emergence or some would say hybridization of both entity. And in some cases, we can observe what we call a de novo person emerging out of that fusion, right? You, you're implanted and you start to gain new capacities or capabilities, new degrees of freedom, autonomy. And that is quite central and critical for your self-understanding, self-concept. And then you become that person identifying with these new capacities. You become a new agent and you go like that for a couple of years. The question is whether or not the novel person created with emergence, the fusion, do we own them rights? What are the obligations, legal obligation, ethical obligation to protect them, to, to generate uh, extra layer of, of uh, protection to be sure that not only we are treating them, but also that 
we were talking about human beings. It's more than just human being implanted with some neutral silicon-based object. It's becoming a subjective element integrated and incorporated in one's self-understanding and inter- interpretation. So when company goes bankrupt and need to explain these devices, at least they claim they need to explain these devices, you should not conceive these devices as, as like a neutral or objective element. It's, it's becoming part of the person, right? And, and, and it is reciprocal. The, without the device, the person is not the same, but some of these devices, and this is what we discussed in our latest paper in brain stimulation in, in June, where the device actually did gain benefit Uh, The algorithm itself actually did gain degrees of autonomy and functionality, gain of function via that specific interaction, the unique signature that they have developed between the two of them. That's really fascinating. So that was another unexpected thing you found, that the device gained that sense. Exactly, yes. Because what is important to understand is that when you have an artificially intelligent device, it's personalized. So the algorithm would adapt to your brain activity and that unique interaction cannot be replicated in someone else. So if then I'm explanted and we use that device to implant in someone else, there's no guarantees or probabilities that will work as well, right? So this is what we observe that Interaction led that algorithm to have a very high degree of autonomy that weren't captured in other uh, patients, for instance. So it would call it, actually, it's called symbiotic relation, actually. And if you implanted that into somebody else because that algorithm is adapted to the original person, that could then, to that person, feel like an invasive presence within them. Yeah, we will not work at all, actually. Yeah, there's a lot of training going on, actually, for the device to identify these objective or biological marker, actually. Yeah. For instance, if you, you, you're quadriplegic and you need to uh, move a prosthetic limb, a lot of training goes into that. It's not, you know, it's not because you're implanted that it will work suddenly. It, it, it's, it's hard work, actually. Yeah. So brain implants are already a well-established mode of treatment, and it seems to be an emerging trend that where AI is concerned, advancement is taking precedence over working out the ethics. This all sounds pretty Robocop. Some researchers have argued that these devices and other deep brain stimulus treatments have worrying side effects. The side effects seem incredibly varied. On one hand, there's reports of overconfidence, but also hypersexuality and hypomania, plus an increased risk of suicide. How do these side effects happen? It's hard also to find a monocausal explanation. So, because once you implant it, clearly there's cases the stimulation are inducing these weird outcome, right? But in other cases, it's not that clear. Yes, we have seen patients having drastic mood change following stimulation and sometimes it led to care neglect and people committing suicide after that, right? So yes, the, the technology has contributed, but it's not the only element that might have led to it. It's just from a medical negligence. But yeah, the cases of hypomania, hypersexuality, that are clearly correlated with the, the volume of stimulation. So the science is not clear why we will observe that in some patients and, and not in others. And even there's not a big consensus of why the stimulating with electricity neurons work that well, actually. It's, it's, it's 
people still don't agree why it is the case, actually. So the science is not settled yet on, on this question. But yeah, any form of treatment that leads to potential personality change is, is, is ethically troubling and legally troubling as well. Yes, because, you know, for instance, your partner get implanted, their symptoms are all gone, but you don't recognize your partner anymore and they are happy about it. My symptoms are gone. It's not me anymore, but I'm happy. But then, you know, divorce, you know, that's the other question that we're not... You didn't sign up for that when you, you were agreed to be implanted, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and you, you've already mentioned Blade Runner. Is there a... If we're, if we're talking a sort of a cyborg futures and maybe getting into the realms of science fiction, but possibly becoming science fact, could these devices be used to create sort of super soldiers or people who believe that they're stronger and tougher and, and have more endurance? And that could have military implications or for police forces and, and things like that. Is that an aspect of this scientific development that d- discussed? As a matter of fact, those who have the biggest agenda are the military. Uh, so DARPA, for instance, with the American development for different weapons, you know, those who created the internet or the GPS, I'm sure you heard about those too, they are actually involved in developing a brain-computer interfaces. Yeah, and, and one of the goals is to enhance or create what they call the super soldier. You can understand why, why they will be doing that, but yeah, so the risk is that if we, we are in a regime or state which surveil the user, for instance, will uh, extract neural data without informing you, that would be a bit a bit uh, critical if we, we fall into a sort of police state that, that do that. But yes, as a matter of fact, yeah, there's a lot of military investment and effort into developing brain-computer interfaces. And um, yeah, the current debate in ethics and law is about what to do with all these neural data that are extracted, accumulated, because, yeah, some say that the, your brain is the last frontier between your privacy and the world, and, and AI is about to open that door. So there's a lot of speculation into that, but it's a plausible risk, actually, yeah. Because I think now we're more aware of mental health and trying to find ways to treat it, there's possibly a greater willingness among the wider population to say, well, I suffer from depression, I could get one of these things, imagine my life without depression, more than just sort of illnesses like uh, epilepsy, where you think there's a more acute need, there could be a sort of slightly a more mainstream widespread feeling of need, and people could willingly sign up for these, which then could have difficult implications, not only for their data, but for how government or society uses these devices? Yeah, the future of these technologies is based on predictive elements. So the, the device and AR are capable of forecasting your brain activity. As such, if you train them to identify the specific biomarker, as I mentioned earlier, you know, your depressive episode, your OCD episode, your turret reaction. So the device is capable of forecasting and, and uh, preemptively stop these elements. But, you know, when we talk about predictive technologies, it can go further. And even if you crack down the code of neuronal activity, some argue that you might be able to deter someone for thinking something or committing specific action, for instance. So, uh, you know, there's even DBS have been tested in people suffering from uh, aggressive outbursts. You could see you know, these devices, that's in a potential future, but used as a condition of release. If you, you're a criminal, for instance, you, you get implanted because the device can predict if you, you have these thoughts of the, these criminal thoughts and will zap you if you have them, for instance. So these have been debated by philosopher and lawyer uh, in the literature. It's quite interesting, but yeah, there's a plausible future there, yes. 
How does the regulation happen and governance and to sort of stop this technology being misused? Is it based on trusting scientists to do it themselves? People like you who hopefully aren't going to be creating super robots, uh, robot cyborg humans. Uh, how, how does the regulation work and how do you feel it should be developed as, as we move forward? Yeah, that's a very important question. Uh, yeah, so at the moment, it's by countries. The UN and the UNESCO, for instance, have started to look into regulating these neural devices, technologies. But as a matter of fact, there are principle or, or guidance or standard across different countries, but each jurisdiction will impose their own regulation directive. So we know that, for instance, um, Americans tend to develop and innovate a lot of these technologies, which will then be sort of regulated by European, which tend to to be the case actually uh, and i think that's currently the, the state of the, the or the current state of the affair where we see a lot of great innovative things happening in, in north america and, and again european calling for the need to regulate them because at the end of the day it's it's the the user the patient the, the person with diseases that that are on the, on the front line that, uh, that are involved in these experimental protocol that that will be harm potentially harms i should say uh, by the development of these technologies. But yeah, we, the way to do that is to gather the most important stakeholder, uh, including the, the patient, into the, the discussion, actually. Uh, not only having a top-down, but rather a down-top type of approach. Do you think there's a strong public appetite for this technology? If I think about how something like phones have, have become such a huge <laughs> yes. part of our life they're an extension of ourselves people feel like i feel lost if i let you leave i can't find my phone i go into panic mode it, i rely on it for so <laughs> many things so we have an acceptance of technology almost becoming part of us do you think people be receptive to it oh yeah think about it just a second so why do we still use your finger to communicate or talk in, the, in an evolutionary point of view there's no reason why we're still using a finger to translate your neuronal activity. So if you have a wearable devices that can directly translate that into an interface, that made 100% sense. I'm not saying that I endorse that, that I subscribe to this, but that's the next step of the market. And there, there's already a market. So there's companies manufacturing already uh, glasses that can ring your brain activities or here plug here that can read brain activity. And it's just the beginning. So I, I can actually see my daughter using one of these wearable in the near future, what will directly communicate with an interface without using a finger or, or voice, actually. And again, I'm not saying that I'm 100% backing this, but it's something that the public will, will welcome. And then this is where we need to regulate uh, what to do with neural data that is extracted because when the device reads your brain activity it's not only pinpointing your intention please bring me some milk it will extract all that back noise and neuronal activity and into that neuronal activity there's a lot of things that you might not want out of your brain actually and there's no more secrets anymore then potentially yeah <laughs> <laughs> well. your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell, and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts.
So it's clear that this revolutionary technology is changing people's lives for the better, beyond anything we could have hoped for just decades ago. Let's hope that our love of helpful tech isn't exploited, either to control us or to access our deepest, darkest thoughts. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Frederic Gilbert. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition. And follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Luke Turner asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Luke Turner. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by Jim Parrott and our theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.